following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Today we're going to discuss the nature of uh, occult laws, the nature of spirituality as a scientific method, and the importance of of, uh, studying esoteric science in conjunction with conventional science. And we're going to discuss specifically how this science pertains to our spiritual development. We're going to talk about the nature of consciousness and the nature of occult investigation into the very mysteries of life and death. The way to verify from our own experience the nature of divinity. And particularly the foundations of this uh, scientific method So gnosis, as we've explained before, is a Greek term, meaning knowledge. And the word science comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. But this type of knowledge is very direct and pertains to what we can verify with what we call the consciousness, which is a term that is uh, very uh, superficially used in these times and very common But, as will be evident in this lecture, few rarely comprehend the real magnitude and the real depth of what it means to awaken the consciousness. So, we talk about occult science. And people, they hear the term occult, they think this is something satanic and evil, or something bad. The word occult comes from the Latin cultare, which means to cultivate Occult means the hidden. So in occult science, we cultivate that which is unseen. And just as there are methods and procedures for verifying the causes and laws behind physical phenomena, likewise do we ascertain that there is a method, a science, for comprehending the noumena behind phenomena. So phenomena is appearance, literally speaking. Neuma is spirit in Greek. 
and noumena refers to the highest states of awakening spiritually. Noumena in Immanuel Kant's philosophy ex, uh, ex, was expressed as the truth, things in themselves. So this science pertains to how we directly verify through our own experience what religion teaches. So as part of this lecture, we're going to discuss the nature of ether, which is very famously postulated within physics, as well as occult science and even many different traditions. We're going to explain how the ether as a substance and energy can assist us in the awakening of consciousness. Alongside this, we'll talk about the nature of parallel universes, the science of consciousness as experiencing the different realms known as heavens, known as nirvana, known as jhana in Arabic. And uh, fundamentally, we're going to discuss the science of spiritual perception. What does it mean to perceive and how can we perceive the truths contained within religion? So His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, states in uh, his book, The Universe in a Single Atom, the need for practitioners of science, official science, to study the mystical teachings of Buddhism or religion, which explain many of the phenomena that quantum mechanics or mechanics physicists are discovering now. So he explains in this book that uh, it's necessary to develop an occult methodology. In order for the study of consciousness to be complete, we need a methodology that would account not only for what is occurring at the neurological and biochemical levels, but also for the subjective experience of consciousness itself. Even when combined, excuse me, neuroscience and behavioral psychology do not shed enough light on the subjective experience, meaning what we can verify through our, our own, own uh, consciousness. It does not shed enough light on the subjective experience as both approaches still place primary importance on the objective third-person perspective. Contemplative traditions on the whole, like Buddhism, have historically emphasized subjective first-person investigation of the nature and functions of consciousness. By training the mind to focus in a disciplined way on its own internal states, This is precisely the demarcation between conventional science and occult science. The conventional physicists and uh, scientists only verify things based on physical matter. They don't investigate what is the activating principles behind matter. Because they ignore, unfortunately, that the only way to verify occult phenomena, or neuma, noumena, We need to awaken our consciousness. And this relies on a very specific type of work in which we discipline our own mind in order to truly awaken our spiritual capacities, to verify what religions have taught us. So again, many people think that the mind is the brain. Many scientists affirm we are just a functionalism of our brain, ignoring that the mind itself and the consciousness or something that is separate, that can inhabit the body or can disinhabit the body, as is explained in the science of dream yoga, astral projection, out-of-body experiences. 
So again, neuroscience cannot explain many of these occult phenomena, and many of these scientists stubbornly reject that there is even the capacity or possibility to experience God, to verify what God is, to know our inner divinity directly. Unfortunately, it is this type of fanaticism and dogmatism in the scientific realm which is blinding many individuals from the, uh, the study of spiritual, spirituality. But fortunately, due to some recent discoveries, such as in quantum mechanics, the study of subatomic particles, they're discovering that even light has consciousness, that light makes choices. So this is a strong revelation on the part of conventional science, that even the smallest particles of matter have a type of awareness. This is something that's been affirmed by the teachings of uh, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, many of the ancient esoteric traditions. So it's precisely the fact that uh, we do not rely exclusively on physical means, but occult methods, that many scientists simply scorn and reject any possibility of investigation, which is sad, precisely because they fail to enact the very scientific methods that they, are, they have vowed to verify, to test. But sadly, like a new priesthood, they are blindly enamored by their own ideas and fail to even want to question themselves. It's precisely this type of discrimination and questioning of our own nature that leads us on the path or to the path that leads to that direct realization of Christ, of Buddha, of Allah. Even uh, Albert Einstein, the great scientist, who uh, was very spiritual in his heart, and as, uh, as may be evidenced from the quote we'll be citing, he knew a little bit about this teaching. So he states that uh, it's important for any system or methodology to be effective, it has to be verifiable. But also the fact that any method that is divorced from any type of experiential knowledge is empty of content, empty of real significance or meaning. He also states it's important to verify things for oneself in order for a system to be valid, whether conventional, but in our case, esoteric, hidden. There are two ways of regarding concepts, both of which are necessary to understanding. The first is that of logical analysis. It answers the question, how do concepts and judgments depend on each other? In answering it, we are on comparatively safe ground. It is the security by which we are so much impressed in mathematics. But this security is purchased at the price of emptiness of content meaning it's just recognizing numbers and knowing relationships, but how does it apply to our physical life or even spiritual life? Concepts can only acquire content, meaning significance or impact, when they are connected, however indirectly, with sensible experience. So concepts can only acquire content when they are connected with sensible experience. But no logical investigation can reveal this connection. It can only be experienced. And yet it is this connection that determines the cognitive values of systems of concepts. So here he's saying that it's not enough just to have theories, but to test it and to verify it. The same thing with occult science. 
We begin with a theory, we begin with beliefs, we practice, we verify through experience. This is why Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and yet who do not see. Because by practicing, we can verify these things. And so a system is worthless if it is not verified, if it does not apply to experience. Here, Albert Einstein, in his book, uh, The World as I See It, the chapter I quoted from, The Problem of Space, Ether, and the Field in Physics, he explains that uh, one needs to verify with sensible experience. But here we're talking about occult experience, mystical experience. And it's important to note that mysticism is a science. The word mysticism comes from the Greek mayin, which means to close one's eyes physically. But by closing one's physical eyes, one learns to perceive with spiritual senses, which is the nature of our intimate divine consciousness. So it's uh, unfortunate that many reject outright the capacity to experience different dimensions, different states of being, matter, energy, consciousness. And it's this lack of investigation which is really the, the emptiness of the physical sciences, which have, many have been divorced from any spiritual principles. But fortunately, there are many scientists who are realizing that due to their findings, such as with light having conscious, making conscious decisions, that they need to rely on more spiritual principles to explain these phenomena. It is the tendency in the scientific world to ostracize and condemn anyone who rejects their theories or beliefs. As I said, this is a new priesthood in which there is an, there's an undominable, indomitable dogmatic institution that says we are the distrib- distributors of knowledge and then you have to receive what we tell you. So, I'd like to quote for you uh, in relation to this topic a saying by a great yogi or a great uh, initiate by the name of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. She wrote a text called The Secret Doctrine and she explains in this quote what it is to really investigate occult science and the need to verify things for ourselves, to not take things at face value, but to experiment, to investigate, because this really entails the scientific method. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the ether, and she quotes a little bit about this mysterious substance which, as we will explain, is what can provoke the awakening of our spiritual perception. Lovatsky states, The present writer, claiming no great scientific education, but only a tolerable acquaintance with modern theories, and a better one with occult sciences, picks up weapons against the detractors of the esoteric teaching in in the very arsenal of modern science. The glaring contradictions the mutually destructive hypotheses of world-known scientists, their mutual accusations, denunciations, and disputes show plainly that, whether accepted or not, the occult theories have as much to a hearing, right to a hearing, as any of the so-called learned and academical hypotheses. Thus, whether the followers of the Royal Society choose to accept ether as a continuous or discontinuous fluid matters little 
and is indifferent to the present purpose. It simply points to one certainty. Official science knows nothing to this day of the constitution of ether. And therefore, we could say of any occult phenomena, because the ether is the medium by which any type of spiritual work can be manifest. Let science call it matter, if it likes. Only neither as akasha, which is another term we will explain, nor as the sacred aether of the Greeks, is it to be found in any of the states of matter known to modern physics. It is a matter on quite another plane of perception and being. And it can neither be analyzed by scientific apparatus, appreciated, nor even conceived by scientific imagination, unless the possessors thereof study the occult sciences. So exactly reiterating what Albert Einstein stated, that uh, we cannot really appreciate the meaning of of, of studying phenomena if if the theory doesn't apply to our of our cognizant experience and by verifying through testing, studying, and approaching it. It can't be analyzed just by scientific apparatuses, physical means. We need superior means. But if we ignore our very capacity to experience God, we reject it, oh, it's not possible. And then we shut the door for ourselves to really knowing what God is. And so this type of science cannot be conceived by scientific imagination unless, as Blavatsky states, it is occupied under the occult sciences. So again, we're going to talk later about imagination. Imagination is the capacity to perceive images, whether on the physical level or in the spiritual level, such as in dreams or when we meditate, seeing images or places or people or things. This is occult imagination, the capacity to perceive phenomena at a psychic and spiritual level. So we state that it's important <coughs> Excuse me. We say the importance, <coughs> excuse me. We say the importance <clears throat> of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we say the importance of uh, developing <clears throat> an open mind. The necessity of uh, investigating information in a uh, scientific manner, one in which we do not have bias, where we do not uh, allow our preconceived notions, excuse me, one in which we do not allow our preconceived notions to infect our understanding. This requires that we have an attitude that is open and that we patiently study and contemplate the different religious traditions, as well as 
what they imply and what they entail. What they entail. And so this is the teaching of uh, Buddhism in relation to the bowl of the Buddha, which is a fundamental teaching within esoteric science. So we see here the Buddha with his bowl open, waiting to receive knowledge. Saffron robes, his golden-colored robes, signifies knowledge within esotericism. And if we awaken within the internal planes, uh, if we have an experience with uh, beings with uh, saffron robes of Buddha, or if we have an experience with the color yellow or orange, it pertains to the mind, the nature of the consciousness. So Buddha here is teaching us in this image that if we wish to comprehend the higher teachings, we need to have a mind that's receptive to learn how to receive knowledge and not to instantly compare, to not theorize, to not speculate, but to receive information and to comprehend it. This is the teaching that Buddha, uh, Jesus gave in the fact that one has to pour new wine in new wineskins, but not to mix it with old wine or old wineskins. <coughs> Excuse me. Because by pouring the new wine into an old wineskin, the old wineskin will break. This refers to uh, adopting a new type of mind, a different type of mentality in which we can uh, <clears throat> in which we can uh, investigate things openly we need a different we need a new attitude we need to be open like a child seeing the world for the first time and not instantly wanting to compare or label or debate or argue instead we need a mind that has to that can receive information in order to test it not to think this is going to work Not to say this is not going to work, but to adopt the scientific method, the attitude that, well, I have my theory about how, I have my theory about how this, uh, where this teaching will lead me, but I will be open to whatever occurs, to test, to verify, to experiment, and to uh, see from experience whether it's true or not. So we say that when listening to a teaching that the bowl itself, the mind, may have uh, three faults. (coughs) A vessel might have the following three faults. One, being upside down. Or, though being held right up, being dirty. Three, though clean, having a leaky bottom. This is a teaching given by Tsongkhapa, who was a great Buddhist master. He wrote this in the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment, known as the Lam Rem Chenmo. There is no great purpose in your hearing the teachings of you, one, do not pay attention, or two, though paying attention, 
misunderstand what is heard or listen with bad motivation, such as attachment. Or three, though lacking these faults, do not solidify the words and meanings taken in at the time of hearing, but let them fade due to forgetting them and so forth. Therefore, free yourself from these three faults. So the same thing when we approach occult science, as in the teachings of Buddhism. Because we say that Gnosis in itself was manifest in the heart of Buddhism, but as well as Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, etc. So we're going to explain some Buddhist principles in relation to uh, occult science. Because by understanding the nature of... uh, The consciousness, we study the nature of our perception, which relates to Buddhism, but also the esoteric teaching. So when we discuss, uh, again, acquiring new knowledge, it means to approach the study of reality with an open mind. And so when we talk about the nature of uh, cosmological laws, We talk about what is known as the fourth dimension. So we're going to discuss the nature of ether. We're going to discuss different natures of uh, perception. And we're going to discuss the requisites for comprehending these laws in ourselves. So the 14th Dalai Lama continues in the same uh, book I mentioned, Universe in a Single Atom, in relation to the study that Einstein provided, provided and uh, the study of the nature of space-time, the fourth dimension, which is essential to the study of consciousness. As I understand it, the most important implication of Einstein's theory of relativity is that notions of space Time and mass cannot be seen as absolutes, existing in themselves as permanent, unchanging substances or entities. Space is is neither an independent, three-dimensional domain. And time is not a separate entity. Rather, they coexist as a four-dimensional continuum of space-time. In a nutshell, Einstein's special theory of relativity implies that while the speed of light is invariable, there is no absolute privileged frame of reference and everything, including space-time, is ultimately relative. This is truly a remarkable revelation. So when we talk about consciousness, we need to talk about space and time. Because the study of uh, the nature of uh, our experience will lead us to the awakening to superior dimensions of nature. And so this study that the nature of consciousness is relative, <clears throat> nature of consciousness is relative, and that the different nature, the different dimensions of nature are relative as well, in, in relation to our perception of them, is a very profound esoteric statement that is affirmed by Buddhism. So as uh, Dalai Lama states, in the Buddhist philosoph- philosophical world, The concept of time as relative is not alien. Before the 2nd century CE, the Santraniko school argued 
against the notion of time as absolute. Dividing the temporal process into the past, present, and future, the Sautronikas demonstrated by, inter, the, by the, demonstrated the interdependence of the three and argued for the untenability of any notion of, of independently real past, present, and future. They show that time cannot be conceived as an intrinsically real entity existing independently of temporal phenomena, but must be understood as a set of relations among temporal phenomena. So this is important to understanding our perception. How do we relate to the physical world? Even understanding how do we perceive? Understanding our relative position and the nature of our universe. Because it's this mistake of feeling that oneself is independent of this existence that is a great delusion. When we perceive that our own mistaken senses of self are uh, relative to us and illusory, we can begin to awaken to a much superior way of life. Apart from this, or apart from the temporal phenomena <clears throat> upon which we construct the concept of time, there is no real time that is uh, welcome. No real time that is somehow the grand vessel in which things and events occur, an absolute that has an existence of its own. So we study uh, welcome. So we study the nature of uh, our relationships to impressions of life from the scientific perspective. We seek to verify our own per- and comprehend our own perceptions, our own relationship to uh, the impressions of life, which in truth is multidimensional in nature. So we're going to discuss the fourth dimension specifically next and how it pertains to our conscious perception. Uh, Previously, we showed the image of uh, what is known as the Bhava Chakra in Buddhism. This image represents the uh, illusory nature of phenomena divided into six realms. We have a course specifically dedicated to this subject on our website at nasateachings.org. But we mentioned the Bhava Chakra in brief because... It explains aspects of our consciousness that we need to understand. So, all beings who dwell within these six realms, which are symbolic in nature, uh, dwell within suffering, within mistaken notions of selfhood, or grasping an aversion to suffering, a psychological attachment that keeps them rotating within the wheel. If you're familiar with uh, Karl Orff, there's a classical composition, Carmina Burana, which is where we have the famous uh, O Fortuna piece. We find that this cycle of, this cycle of uh, or rotation within different realms of suffering, different ways of perceiving our mistaken notions of self create suffering. So we study briefly the Bhava Chakra. Because in order to awaken to our genuine spiritual nature, we seek to transcend this wheel. This can only come about by questioning our own perceptions, by learning to perceive our mind, as we were practicing earlier, as a separate entity, and that we as a consciousness are something separate and distinct. 
Those who have freed themselves from the wheel of suffering are known as bodhisattvas. They have escaped the dualistic mentation of the mind and they have transcended to a superior region. You see them in the top corners of the image. So this science of consciousness that we're explaining pertains to understanding our different modes of perception and the nature of uh, what we call space and time, the fourth dimension. Because by understanding space and time, we understand ourselves to a deeper degree. Now, people in uh, conventional science have, at least within the past century, affirmed the existence of a fourth coordinate. And we study the nature of the fourth dimension in relation to our consciousness because it pertains to how we perceive or the illusions of what we perceive. So first off, we have uh, uh, this image. We have an eye with a clock, which we're going to explain, and uh, sands representing the chronometric aspect of time. So when we talk about the fourth dimension, we talk about two aspects of our perception in this region because it's this illusion of time of thinking of the future worrying about the past which keeps us hypnotized and not recognizing our current state of being so the quote Samael and Vior the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition in his book Cosmic Teachings of a Lama length, width, and height are without any doubt even if these are of a Cartesian type the three Euclidean, Euclidean aspects of this three-dimensional world within which, for good or bad, we live. It is evident that it would be absurd to exclude the fourth factor from our postulations. Thus, considering time as the fourth dimension, it intrinsically contains two fundamental properties, namely temporal and spatial. It is positive, authentic, and undeniable that the chronometric aspect of life, <clears throat> excuse me, the chronometric aspect of life is exclusively the unstable surface of the spatial depth. So in discussing consciousness, we talk about these two factors. The chronometric aspect of time, the illusion of that there is a morning, an afternoon, a day, an evening, or a five o'clock or afternoon, or a twelve o'clock at night this illusion of time that we commonly experience and sense, that is the chronometric aspect of our perception. But we also have what is known as the spatial depth of our perception, which could only be developed if we learn to awaken our consciousness, our spiritual capacities. So we have this image of the eye with the clock to represent the spatial depth of the fourth dimension. So it's important to study the fourth dimension because when we comprehend ourselves, we are learning to perceive our own multidimensional nature. We are learning to perceive how we are not just a three-dimensional being with length, width, and height. We have actually uh, a much more profound and deeper constitution than is admitted by conventional science. We have our emotions which in our, in our mind which are more real to us than anything else. In fact, we always try to make the physical world 
to concur to our own desires, the way we think and feel. We want our uh, external world and universe to uh, coincide with our concepts, beliefs, our emotions, our attitudes, our cravings. If we want coffee, we want coffee. And we make effort to fulfill our needs. It's not just a physical instinct, but it's an emotional craving. Or in our mind, we have a belief about a certain system or teaching, and we strongly affirm it against another person we argue with. So therefore, this is indicating that the mind and the emotions in themselves are more real to us than anything physical. And that, and even the way we physically live, is completely contingent upon our thoughts and our feelings and our, and our psychological constitution. Even the way we perceive uh, the illusions of time and our own uh, sense of self depends entirely on how we perceive. Uh, it depends entirely... upon uh, this question. What is it that we perceive and how do we know? So our multidimensional nature is, is uh, verified even by the existence that we have thought, feeling. So if we observe ourselves and analyze where does it come from? Where do we receive thoughts? Where do emotions emerge? The truth is because uh, these Elements of our constitution belong to different dimensions of nature, which interpenetrate our physical plane, which we're going to be explaining in relation to the Kabbalah, which is known as the Hebrew uh, tree of life, a map of the multidimensional nature of our consciousness. So if we wish to understand the nature of uh, our perception, if we wish to understand the mysteries of life and death, we need to overcome this illusion of time, that there is a tomorrow or that there was a yesterday. The truth is there is only in this moment. Our sense of time is dependent upon physical factors and therefore our relationships uh, create this relationships to different uh, obligations, family, career, job, physical objects like home or property. Our relationship to all these things create this illusion of what we call time. And that if we wish to comprehend uh, the more higher spiritual principles, we need to understand the nature of our own illusions of time. To observe here and now. To not think of the future but, or, the, or the past, but to be aware of the present moment. And this, as we're going to explain, starts to develop what we know as the spatial depth. Which is the, the ability of the consciousness to, ex, to perceive physical phenomena in a new way, in a more encompassing way. Even in this physical plane, we have many illusions. So, Samael and Vior states in the Doomdarian race, in relation to the nature of our three dimensions, as well as the fourth dimension, a line is the print that a dot leaves when moving through space. A plane is the print that a line leaves while moving through space. A solid is the print that a plane leaves while moving through space. So these are our three dimensions. And typically all we perceive are just length, width, and height in terms of our physical senses, our sight, our capacity to hear, etc. We fairly recognize 
or are able to perceive the vital depth of a person. This is known as clairvoyance by learning to perceive energy of people, uh, the chakras, uh, clairvoyance, which in French literally means clear vision. So don't think that only a few people have this capacity or that they're gifted. In fact, we all have the potential to develop these faculties if we're sincere. That our inner, our inner being, our inner God, can guide us to awakening what we call the spatial depth, which is clairvoyance. So when we learn to awaken our own divine perception, we can begin to perceive life in a new way. And all of us have, to some degree, if we're, in this, if we're approaching this science, have experienced something of a, to, to a degree of this type of phenomena in which we were shocked, in which at a given moment we question, why am I even here? What am I doing here? Who am I as a person? Where am I going? Meaning, spiritually. If I die, what will happen? Will we really question what it is we know? And we analyze what it is that we want to know. So when we learn to develop that, um, when we follow that hunch, that yearning, we approach the science that leads us towards the development of that capacity within us. So when we develop the spatial sense, clairvoyance, spiritual perception, we begin to perceive uh, different phenomena. Some island viewer continues. A, <clears throat> a hypersolid is the print that a solid leaves while moving through space. So here we're talking about points, lines, and planes. And that when they move through space, they create the different dimensions. When a physical object, when a solid of three dimensions moves through space, it creates what is known as a hypersolid. Some island viewer states, it is the fourth dimension of a, any given body. Hypersolids, hypervolume, and hyperspace are only perceptible with the awakening of the consciousness. So that which people call auras, seeing imagery within the internal dimensions, such as in dream yoga, awakening in the astral plane, speaking to angels, conversing with the gods, and perceiving physical life in a totally new manner, pertains to the awakening of perception and the the perception of hypersolids, hypervolume. Because the hypersolid of a person is simply the vital aura, of a, the energy of a person, what we call the ether of a person. And so when we talk about, even talking about the nature of ether and energies and how to use energy to awaken consciousness, we need to emphasize that there are really four states of consciousness in this science. And that if we wish to comprehend the nature of uh, time, if we wish to develop our clairvoyance to perceive uh, the heavenly beings within the uh, superior dimensions when we dream, we need to comprehend that there are four states of consciousness, of perception. We use Greek terms from Plato, who knew this science in depth. He was a Gnostic initiate. We have Ikasia. Ikasia simply means, uh, ironically, imagination. This is very interesting. We emphasize that Ikasia is sleep without dreams. To be asleep as a consciousness and to not even have dreams. 
So we typically associate this state with being physically asleep and eight hours passing by in the night and then we wake up and not remember anything. This is one level of meaning to this state of consciousness. But even more directly, if we look at the, the, the literal translation, ikase means imagination, means perception. It's a type of perception such as we have now, meaning we physically we have our sight, our hearing, our touch, etc. And yet we fail to recognize the inherent intrinsic reality contained within any impression that we receive. We fail to understand that the nature of any given impression of life is illusory. We, see it, we simply see appearances we don't really directly see within a person. So we're having a conversation with an individual. Unless we are really awakened spiritually, we don't perceive their thoughts. But we have a general sense of emotion, of experience. Ikasya literally means imagination. It means the type of perception we all have. We are physically awake, but spiritually speaking, we are asleep. We are not aware of our, our energies, our divine potential at a clairvoyant level, on an observant level. Humanity is caught within this state of ikasya. People think they are awake. Physically, yes. But spiritually, no. To be spiritually awake is to uh, perceive the vital forces that animate nature. To see life in a new way. Not to be caught up in thought, intellect, theories, debate. Which is precisely the second state of consciousness. Excuse me. Pistis. In Greek, literally means belief. So... It means sleep with dreams. So what is a belief but a dream, an idea, a concept that has not been verified? Many human beings on this, on this globe have many theories, spiritual or scientific, and yet which are not grounded in the actual experience of the truth that have not been verified through one's own cognizance. So pistis is to dream. So if we physically go to sleep and we have dreams, that is pistis. We are not aware that we're dreaming. We're not aware that we're receiving, receiving images on a psychic level within the dream state. Therefore, these are illusory. This illusion. Ikasya, again, is sleep without dreams. And when we are physically awake, it doesn't mean that we are spiritually awake. It means that our physical senses are active but our own consciousness is asleep. It's in a potential state. It's not developed. That can only be developed by learning, to, learning how to work with energy, known as the ether, as we'll explain, and learning to direct our attention. So precisely the state of awakened consciousness <clears throat> excuse me, is dianoia. Dianoia literally means revision of belief. And we call this the state of awakening. 
So do not mistake that being physically awake, one is spiritually awake. Because we can be physically asleep and we can be awake in the superior dimensions of nature, known as astral projection, out-of-body experiences. Or one can be physically awake and yet asleep as a consciousness, or better said, uh, one could be physically asleep and psychologically asleep. So do not think that consciousness simply means or that we, that we in our state possess consciousness. Yes, we perceive phenomena. We perceive images, sensations, thought, emotion. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we comprehend those phenomena as they exist within ourselves. And as you uh, might have noticed from the practice we did at the beginning, before the lecture, we were sitting to observe our own mind. As if the mind itself is an actor and that we are a director. If we've seen that our own thoughts come and go without any control on our part, if we, f- if we can experience that emotions come and go without any direction of our will, it means that we are not in control of our mind. It means that we perceive life, but we do not comprehend it. It's precisely this foundation which is the, that we seek to emphasize. Consciousness does not literally mean being physically awake. The consciousness is part of the, the being of God that needs to be developed. So ekasya means sleep. We are here present, but the question is whether we are paying attention or if we were awake as a spirit, as a psyche. Pistis is sleep with dreams, meaning anytime we have an idea, a preoccupation, a memory, we're driving our car but thinking about other things, we're planning our day when we're drinking coffee or conceptualizing, theorizing, believing. This is pistis. These are fluctuating states of experience that do not signify that we, as a, as a consciousness of, the, of part of God, are really awake, vigilant, active, being aware of the thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, perceptions, comprehending them all in this instant. That is dianoia. Because noia means mind. Daya means side to side. So dianoia means to stand aside from the mind and to look at it for what it is. That it's a machine. It, just, it, it can store information. It can conceptualize. It can rationalize. It can compare things. But it cannot know God. And sadly, uh, Immanuel Kant, great German, uh, German philosopher, was rejected because he stated this, that the mind cannot know the truth. And many philosophers were angry with him. said, what are you talking about? Because they th- used the intellect to try to d- explain spiritual phenomena. So dianoia means to stand aside from the mind and see it for what it is. But yet, besides this type of perception, there's something superior, which we call noose. Noose is illuminated, awakened consciousness. So it's one thing to stand aside from the mind and see it for what it is. To comprehend that it's it's like a separate entity in itself. It's another thing for that consciousness to unite with God and to be one with God to perceive oneself as God. 
when the being is fully manifested in that consciousness. This is known in the East among the yogis as samadhi, as experiences in which the consciousness is like a drop of water lost in the ocean of divinity. What's a yogi? A yogi is a, a person who practices yoga. Oh, okay. And a, so, a, so this teaching is essentially yoga in itself. We're learning to understand, understand, the, understand the mind and to control our own mind so that we can attain union, which is the meaning of yoga. Yug, the Sanskrit word, to reunite so that we can reunite with God. So nous implies the... Like the Indian language? Or they... Sanskrit. Yes, it's, it's uh, the Eastern language. Oh, okay. And uh, so nous pertains to experiencing the consciousness of God, which is very elevated, and which we can only really experience through meditation, which is the fundamental teaching or practice of this tradition. So if you're familiar with uh, Plato's teaching, he talked about the allegory of the cave in uh, his book, uh, The Republic. He describes there's a, a group of men or people living in a cave in which there's a wall, and individuals are chained by their necks and their legs and their arms to that wall, facing the darkness. Behind the wall, there is a fire. And individuals are carrying clay pottery on their heads and their arms past the light, and it's casting shadows on the wall. Now, the individuals who only see darkness in that cave is a kasya. They sleep, they have no dreams. They see no imagery. Meaning they don't perceive even psychic imagery. Such as if we go to sleep physically... Eight hours go by, we don't remember anything. This, is a, this exemplifies the fact that if this is our common state of being, it means that we are like the prisoner in the cave, unable to see even images. And then there are those who see images on the wall. Those are uh, dreams, false illusions. Any belief, thought, concept, idea in itself is an image, it's fleeting. It passes on the screen of our mind, it disappears. That's all we see. Fortunately, in the, in the allegory, we have an individual who is freed from his confines. Taken, turned around to face the light, the fire in the cave, and is immediately blinded by that light. But when his eyes adjust, he realizes his surroundings and that the clay pottery that was before the light of the of the the fire is projecting its images on the wall. And he realizes that what he previously perceived was an illusion. So this is dianoia. He stands outside himself to the side of his mind and says, this is all, now I see that what I perceived before, my ways of thinking, my ways of feeling, my ways of behaving, all that is illusory. And that my perception of these things is in itself is something superficial. But again, the story doesn't end there. It's not enough just to see the fire in the cave. That's Dianoia. This person then is forced, uh, Socrates says in Plato's teaching, Socrates was the teacher of Plato, that uh, this individual has to be forced out of the cave, dragged against his will. And this is us when we're really beginning to study this type of science and then if we're beginning to awaken our consciousness. We have to be dragged out by, divinity takes us by the cuff pulls us out of the cave and gives us the experience where emerging from the mountainside, one sees the stars. 
And even at this point, the, the person's eyes are weak and dim, can't perceive the light as it is. And then for the first time in this individual's life who's been in the cave, he sees the, the sun, the sunrise for the first time. And we know from the, Christ, the Christian teachings that Christ is the sun, the solar logos, the fire, the flame of life that animates all beings. And so he sees that light for the first time, and is blinded by that luminosity. And it takes him weeks to adjust to that light. And then he realizes when he's in freedom that he, he feels such pity for people who are in the cave because they don't understand what freedom is. And so that experience of the sun for the first time is noose. To be united with God is noose. It is the consciousness illuminated by the Spirit, by our Buddha, by Allah, by, by Christ, different names for that energy, that force. So we are like that in the cave. We, are, we perceive thought, feeling, emotion, sensations. But we don't really comprehend how these in themselves are phenomena. They're constantly changing, like the images on the wall of the cave. By learning to work with our energy, precisely the ether, which we're going to be discussing, we can generate our own fire, which is represented by the fire of the cave. In order to perceive light, we need fire. So in spiritual studies, we talk about the need to work with energy. We talk about the need to uh, develop spiritual forces. So uh, the nature of energy is described in this image. This uh, glyph is known in, in Kabbalah as the tree of life. This is one of the trees that was mentioned in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. So this tree represents a map of consciousness from the highest realms of the being of God to the lowest levels of matter, energy, and consciousness. So above, we have, we have, basically we have ten spheres, or I don't know, Sephiroth. Above, we have uh, Christ, the Trinity above, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Below, we have the different Uh, manifestations of that light which descends down into matter and energy through uh, past periods of uh, cosmic evolution, which is a different topic. But in this image, it explains the the multidimensional nature of our being. We all have God within. We all have a spark, a flame that unites us with the, the source of all creation, which above is known as the absolute Here we have the top trinity. Notice we have three trinities. The top trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, it's Keter Chokmah Binah. Below that, we have another trinity, which is the trinity of the Spirit. God, our own particular God within. Chesed, Geburah, Tifereth. We have the Spirit, the consciousness, and what is known as the soul, or human soul. Below that, we have, to the right, mind. Netzach. Left, we have emotions, Hod. Beneath that, we have Yesod, which is uh, vital energy, the foundation of all spiritual practice. And then below that, we have Malkut, which is uh, the physical body. So notice, even in this diagram, the mind, the mind, the emotions, and the vitality are just the bottom of the real human being. They are not the totality. We have other aspects of being that we need to awaken to. 
And so when we talk about the multidimensional nature of our constitution, we talk about this glyph. Because all of us have Christ within. All of us have our own spirit that if we unite with in meditation, we can become one with that consciousness, that state of being, which is to see the light of uh, day for the first time, like in the allegory of the cave. So we see that uh, this glyph is dividing to different dimensions. Here we're talking about the fourth dimension. If we look in this image, this, this glyph is divided, excuse me, into seven dimensions. The bottom we have our third, three-dimensional world, Malkut, the physical body. The fourth dimension is known as Yasod, the vital body. And when we talk about bodies and energy, we're talking about uh, vehicles, which exists within more subtle levels of nature, of matter, energy, and consciousness, that we can access when we know uh, how to awaken in dreams. And the way we do that is precisely working with the ether, known as our vitality, what gives us strength, which gives us the capacity to perceive life in this physical plane. The physical body, Malkut, is just an instrument of the vital body. So if you're familiar with the... Excuse me. The Kirlian camera, who's a Russian scientist, developed this camera that can photograph the aura of living things. Even minerals have vital depth, vital energy. And it's this energy that's going to grant us the capacity to ascend up this tree. It's the ether, the light, which illuminates the different spheres which form the Christmas tree. So that tree is the tree of life, fully illuminated by the ether of our body, of our energies, which when we work with that energy, it illuminates and creates the Christmas tree, the Christ mass tree, which is a harmony or union with the Christ force. So you view that as like a ladder? Then? Yes. We even talk about in the Bible, Jacob's ladder. Right. So we all start at the bottom, per se, and then we kind of spiritually work up? Yes. This is known as the process of initiation, which is another lecture. Is that why they put lights on the Christmas tree? Because, because that represents the human being fully illuminated, the different sephiroth, to the star, which is the, really the goal that we seek, our own inner being at the heights. So, uh, again, we talk about seven dimensions. The Christ, known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit above, relates to the seventh dimension. This light is the first, or the zero dimension, we could say. It's the first emanation or light that emerges from that source we call absolute Time does not exist in the source of divinity, the absolute. However, that energy, that light known as Christ, descends and enters into different levels of matter, energy, and perception. Beneath that, we have the sixth dimension, which is where we find the spirit, the consciousness, and our human soul. This is known as nirvana among the Buddhists. Nirvana literally means cessation, and it means that in order to acquire that state, one needs to, to acquire the cessation of suffering, a mind that's serene, so that one can experience those realms, only by controlling the mind. Beneath that, we have two sephiroth, two spheres. We have on the right, netzach, which is mind, intellect. On the left, we have hod, emotions, the astral vehicle. So this constitutes the mind and the emotions, constitute the fifth dimension. 
which is beneath nirvana. The fifth dimension is where we go to dream. We typically travel in a, what, we tip, what some call the astral body or the mental body, which are vehicles in which nature gives, or we could say lunar vehicles. Nature gives us certain vehicles so that we can exist with thought and feeling in those realms. Beneath that we have Yasod, the fourth dimension, which we equate with space and time, as well as the ether. Yes, and this is in the in in the Al Quran, the teaching given by Prophet Muhammad. He said that paradise is attained uh, is a land of milk and honey. So this is the fourth dimension that he was talking about. Many of the saints who acquire beatitude and sanctification in their life, they enter into paradise, which is Yasod, a voluptuous and blissful state. And then beneath that we have Malkut, the physical plane. So I'm going to explain to you just a little bit about, from the teachings of Samael and Vior, the nature of these different dimensions. We have been told that the fourth dimension is time in its exclusively temporal aspect. We have been informed that the fifth dimension is eternity, meaning uh, mind and emotions, relating to these two sephiroth, Netzach and Hod. The absolute zero exists in dimensional subject matters. The zero dimension is pure spirit. This is, the, this is a seventh dimension. As I mentioned, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit above. The intellectual beast, and this sounds very harsh, but the truth is all of us are, we could say, animals with intellect. The word animal comes from anima, which means soul. So we are souls with intellect. And if we are constantly identified with negativity and anger and pride and passion, it means that we are bestial in a sense, negative. And we use our intellect and create many problems for ourselves. So the intellectual beast is bottled up in Euclidean geometry because he has never awakened the consciousness. The consciousness that slumbers is content with Euclid's tridimensional geometry, meaning just Isosceles triangles and uh, other shapes uh, relating to the physical plane, ignoring that there is a higher mathematics, a higher type of teaching. One-dimensional creatures only possess sensations of pleasure and pain, likes and dislikes, such as, for example, the snail. Bidimensional creatures, such as dogs, cats, and horses, etc., possess sensations and representations. They not only have, feel good, pain and, of good and bad, pleasure and displeasure, they also see representations of images, such as the person, the master, etc. The tridimensional biped, mistakenly called a human being, and we will elaborate on this point, possesses sensations, representations, and concepts. So we talk about the human being made into the image of God. People think the image of God is the physical body, and they're mistaken. Because this image is psychological and spiritual. To be made into the image of God is to be a mind united with the spirit. Because the word mind in Sanskrit is manas, man. The spirit is whom in Sanskrit. The breath, the wind that floated above the face of the waters in the book of Genesis. That wind or spirit needs to work with our energies, known as ether. 
in order to create the image of God within. So a human being is just that, a Christmas tree fully illuminated. Because the, the, if we take this image and put it on a person, we find it matches with the physical body, with the, the highest aspects of God in the brain. We have the spirit in the heart. And then we have our vital energies or forces within sexuality. So the spatial sense can never be developed without the awakening of the consciousness. The spatial sense includes, in an absolute manner, the five senses and many other senses that physiologists absolutely ignore. So this is precisely our goal in these studies, to become what the Bible calls a human being. But what is a being? Is the Christ, the inner Buddha, our spirit within. A human is a mind that obeys God within. So it's psychological, it's not physical. And when we talk about the nature of ethers, you'll, we'll explain why. So the fourth dimension precisely is the foundation that leads us towards the path of spiritual development. The ether in itself is a mysterious substance that was pondered about by physicists and there's, there's been much speculation about the nature of this substance. They talk about space-time as taught by Einstein. But many really fail to understand that this ether is uh, what can grant us the capacity to experience the spiritual realms. So notice how, even going back to this image, this tree of life is centered on this sephira, yesod, known as ether, known as energy. It gives our vitality in our body. It's the bottommost logo? Yes. Or not the bottommost, it's the second to bottom. In the very center, it's uh, right above Malkut. So we have here Yasad and then Malkut below. So our foundation of the entire tree of life, of the unity with God, is precisely by knowing how to work with this energy called ether. More specifically, we call it the sexual force. The sexual energy. Why is the bottommost one the upside down and inverted? That in itself, is a, it's a good question. That is known as hell. In Kabbalah, it's called klipot, which literally translates as shells. So uh, it's the inverted aspect of the tree of life. Just as there is a tree, just as there is heaven, there is hell. So hell refers to our own pride, anger, negativity, vanity, laziness, gluttony, our defects. So it's the shadow of the tree that we need to eliminate if we want to illuminate our Christmas tree, meaning our own inner being, our inner constitution. Is that what the different like areas of the inverted one are? Is the seven like gluttony, vanity, pride? Not specifically. Uh, you can't you can't correlate necessarily each uh, of the nine inverted Sephiroth with a specific defect. Oh. Instead, there's astrological influences that Master Samael explains in books like uh, Hell, Devil, and Karma, in which uh, he describes how different planetary influences govern the different spheres of hell. But that's another topic. Because hell in itself is not just a physical a place in the internal dimensions where people suffer. It, there is a place. But instead, there is a, there's, it more importantly refers to our psychological states. So, being in the physical body itself, we can say that, yes. And our body needs to be purified and uh, become a house for God, like symbolized by the Virgin Mary. Mary represents the physical body, 
that needs to be purified in order to reincarnate Christ. The way that we work with that is by working with the ether. So we're going to explain more about this energy and how it applies to our spiritual development. So uh, I'd like to actually quote for you Albert Einstein, again, from the same book, The World as I See It. This is from the chapter, The Problem of Space, Ether, and the Field in Physics, explaining how many scientists are trying to, or debating this concept of space-time. And what is this ether that is so essential to, to physics? The mechanical properties of the ether were at first a mystery. Then came H.A. Lawrence's great discovery. All the phenomena of electromagnetism then known could be explained on the basis of two assumptions. That ether is firmly fixed in space, that is to say, unable to move at all, and that electricity is firmly lodged in the mobile elementary particles. Today his discovery may be expressed as follows. Physical space and and the ether are only different terms for the same thing. Fields are physical conditions of space. For if no particular state of motion belongs to the ether, there does not seem to be any ground for introducing it as an entity with a sort of special sort alongside space. So there's this big, great debate about the nature of ether, whether it's a different substance from space or if it's one with space. And so we talk about, especially in these teachings, how in order to develop our spatial sense, our capacity to perceive life in a completely different manner, we need to work with that energy that ether, which is within our, precisely our sexual organs. It's a vital energy that gives us life, which, you know, we had our parents, they copulated, and then now we have a physical body. That energy also has the potential to create spiritually, if we know how to use it correctly. So here, uh, Einstein's explaining that, you know, they're trying to, resolve this issue of like how, does, how does electromagnetism work? How do, how do forces manifest and act through matter? And precisely the answer is through the ether, known as the fourth dimension. He's saying that there's this direct link between the ether and our sexual organs. Yes. That's, that's where the capacity is to see these forces behind nature and the flowers that Steiner talked about. Yes. So when we know how to work... So... Uh, Precisely, this, this, this substance known as ether, which permeates every atom of our physical body, grants our body the capacity to transmit electricity, energy, forces, biochemistry, such as, uh, such as, uh, escaping my mind, the different processes of a digestion, of uh, excretion, of many, ele- of many processes in our physical body, which we take for granted. This is all our life depends on the health of our vital body. When a person dies, it means that the vital body has lost its energies and it basically separates from the physical body or disintegrates. And the physical body, when it, if, it, if the physical body never had its vital depth, meaning those vi- e- ethers or energies present in the, in the body, we would die. So our very life, even our lifespan, depends on how we use our energies, whether mental, emotional, or sexual. So remember, we talk about the mind, we talk about the emotions, and we're talking about Yesod now, the foundation of spiritual practice, as the, as the ether. So this ether also manifests, again, in different ways. We have it not only in our sexual organs as the vital foundation of life. We also have it within space. 
It's a substance that permeates all of nature. It allows for the spiritual forces of God to manifest physically. So just as we have it within our body, we have it within the cosmos. As, re- as represented by this uh, glyph or this image. And so uh, many people have uh, debated about the nature of ether from different religions, different traditions, trying to explain what it is. Many having very conflicting and contrary opinions about it. But we explain in synthesis that the ether, as we know it, is in our sexual organs. It's a condensation of spiritual forces that come from, even from the galaxies, from the stars, from the highest realms of the tree of life, as we mentioned. And so this ether also, as we're going to explain, enters into our body and manifests in different ways. There's different ways that we can work with this energy in order to awaken our consciousness. Uh, So, actually, I'd like to quote again from Blavatsky from The Secret Doctrine. She states, The septenary gradation and the innumerable subdivisions and differences made by the ancients between the powers of ether collectively, from its outward fringe of effects, with which our science is so familiar, up to the imponderable substance, once admitted as the ether of space, now about to be rejected, meaning people used to think it was a separate substance from space, ignoring that the cosmos, the space, is one with that energy. And it, through the condensation of forces on the tree of life, enters into our body, enters our sexual organs. And then it's a matter of returning that energy inward and upward towards the source, not only physically, but within our different, different levels of our constitution, represented by that tree. So, uh, this imponderable substance, once admitted as the ether of space, now about to be rejected, has been a vexing riddle for every branch of knowledge. The mythologists and symbologists of our day, confused by this incomprehensible glorification on the one hand and degradation on the other, of the same deified entity and in the same religious systems, are often driven to the most hideous, uh, ludicrous mistakes. So many people, they think this substance ether mentioned in religion is basically the abode of hell, to some. So, Blavatsky states, The church, firm as a rock, in each and all of her early errors of interpretation, has made of the ether the abode of her satanic legions. So there's a lot of misconceptions about ether. They think it's some kind of, maybe just a, oh, it's just a physical chemical to put someone to sleep. Or it's some demonic substance that it channels evil forces. The truth is, ether in itself, in its most unmodified uh, original substance which we seek to work with in ourselves is known as the Divine Mother space. So we see in this image in a Hindu, uh, Hindu depiction of uh, the Divine Mother and from her emerges three figures Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. These are just different terms for the Holy Trinity of Christianity. Brahma, the Father, uh, Vishnu, the Son, the Christ, and, uh, and uh, Shiva, the Holy Spirit. These are energies, not people, but forces. So the Divine Mother is the space that we find in the universe, which is the habitat of that energy known as ether, the sacred force. The Hindus give it a different name. They call it Prakriti. And so they say Prakriti, this, eth- this energy, 
is the Divine Mother. So when we talk about the Virgin Mary, we're addressing that divinity, which is not, cannot be conceptualized with images necessarily. Yes, prana, prana is, uh, is another term. We say uh, prana is a life force. And so a lot of these terms are really synonymous. They indicate aspects of the same force. So the reason we study the, the, this cosmological perspective in relation to the science of consciousness is because it's by working with these energies, divine forces, that we can awaken to superior levels of, of experience. So prakriti means nature, literally from Sanskrit. And we have a, uh, we could also call her mula prakriti at the same time. Mula means root. So that she's the root of nature, which is the space. So remember in the book of Genesis, the spirit of God hovered above the face of the waters. Or the, it says literally in Hebrew, the ruach Elohim hovered above the face of the waters. The face of the deep, meaning the space And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. So working with the waters is precisely how God created the light within. So although there's a cosmological relationship to this myth, more importantly, it refers to how we develop psychologically, spiritually. The waters are precisely those ethers, the vital forces of nature, which we have in our sexual glands. And when we know how to work with our, our own inner being, the spirit, the Ruach Elohim, God can create light within, can awaken the consciousness. And so, uh, again, that light is developed by working with those waters, known as ether, some call it akash, there's different names. And we find it precisely within our sexual glands. Because uh, if you're familiar with Hinduism, the yogis, they teach the base chakra, the spine, the base of the spine is known as muladhara. It's the abode of prakriti, they say. It's the abode of the Divine Mother. So relating to Hinduism, the energies of God, the Divine Mother force, known as Kundalini, she is the prakriti within us that can awaken and ascend up our spinal column when we know how to work with those energies, known as ether. Or we could say akash, another term for that. So to awaken sparks of that force, one can work with mantra, but specifically we refer to the necessity for uh, what we call scientific chastity. People think chastity simply means to abstain from sex. It really means purity within sex. So if one is single, one can practice exercises like pranayama. We have available in our literature. And also mantras help stimulate that energy in order to channel those forces, and we can awaken sparks of that that fire. The only way to fully awaken the kundalini is precisely in a matrimony, which is not the, we couldn't explain in depth today, but it's uh, the union of man and woman, sexually speaking, in which the most powerful forces of God, the fires of creation, can give birth to the spirit. Because Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Meaning if one copulates in the normal fashion, one can give birth to a physical child. But that which is born of the spirit in the same sexual act, can be spirit. If we conserve that energy, we don't expel it, meaning to not reach the orgasm, specifically. When a woman is having her moon cycle, or time of the month, it's dangerous to work with the pranayama, right? You should, women, women, when they're in their menstruation cycle, uh-huh. 
shouldn't mantralize, shouldn't transmute. No, no. No, none of that. Just to meditate because it's a natural process in the female body that needs to expel negative substances from the body. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a natural process for women because the, the, the feminine body is more receptive and receives energies and needs to purify every month. Mm-hmm. So when that, during that process, a woman should only meditate. Don't mantralize, don't transmute. Not even mentally mantralize? I would say uh, you can, but physically devocalized is a special creation that occurs okay. when physically mantralizing. So not to do pranayama, not to do, uh, but to pray. One can pray, one can meditate during those times. Okay. Um, instead, uh, one should, because uh, the body needs to clean itself, basically. So prakriti is precisely within that chakra known as muladhara. Dara means foundation, mula means root. So when we, as I mentioned with some of the exercises, we seek to awaken that fire. So that fire, like in the allegory of the cave, can illuminate us so that we can leave the mountain, leave the cave, and ascend to the highest realms, basically speaking. Is that Kundalini force in both the sexual organs and the coccyx at the root of the, or how does it... The Kundalini is a serpent fire, is coiled within three and a half times in Muladhara Chakra. It's at the base of the spine. But we have that energy active in our sexual organs, basically. And so when we know how to work with the Divine Mother, we can uh, uh, awaken our consciousness. So again, this energy is in space, but we also find this energy within our sexual glands. So Samael and Vior states in uh, one of his books of astrology, Prakriti, the Divine Mother, is the primordial substance of nature. Several substances, different elements and sub-elements exist within the universe, but all these are different manifestations of a single substance. The Great Mother, the Prakriti, the primordial matter, is the pure Akasha contained within the entire space. We sometimes say Akasha, we sometimes say Ether. Really, they're synonymous. Millions and billions of universes are being born and dying within the bosom of the Prakriti. Every cosmos is born from the Prakriti and is dissolved within the Prakriti. Every world is a ball of fire that becomes ignited and extinguished in the bosom of Prakriti. Everything is born from the Prakriti. Everything returns to the Prakriti. She is the Great Mother. So just as we have Divine Mother space, we also have the Divine Mother as a serpentine fire within our Cossacks. And so, uh, again, we have another image of space representing the forces of uh, nature, divine nature. Sure. Yes. The, Mer- the Merkaba, which is the chariot of the, the initiates, is a representation of what we call the solar bodies. These are vehicles, vehicles that can, can express the energies of Christ here and now. So if we were to try to, if Christ knows that if he were to try to incarnate within a person who did not have those, those vehicles within, that person would be obliterated. To be spiritually awake is to, uh, even, if one, even if one develops the consciousness, one is at another point to walk the path of initiation to create what we call the solar bodies. So many people, they talk about astral body, mental body. But the truth is that we, in our, as we are now, we typically possess what are called lunar vehicles. Vehicles that we inhabit when we dream, that were given to us by nature. 
but we need to create a superior type of vehicle, which is only possible through alchemy or the perfect matrimony. When we when we uh, when we awaken the kundalini and develop a, up the spinal medulla, not only within the physical body but the vital body, the astral body, the mental body, the bodies above, that creates what we call solar bodies. So the kundalini force, the divine mother, can create those vehicles of soul. We could say they're they're different aspects of ourselves, just in the same way that. Our thoughts are dealing from our emotions and our body. We have, we have the distinctions, but usually they interpenetrate in such a way that we don't know the difference. But that's why we need to awaken ourselves consciously so that we can differentiate between thought, feeling, emotion, sensation, etc. And the Kundalini expands your consciousness, correct? It can give us greater capacities for awakening, yes. The Merkaba does the same thing? The Merkaba is uh, having solar bodies can give oneself capacities to experience uh, superior dimensions. And so the way that we develop those vehicles is precisely by working with this primordial root matter. We call it ether, we call it akasha, we call it prakriti. And so this energy is really the root of all cosmo- cosmogenies, not only in the physical uh, universe that we, ex- that we know of, but also our, even our internal universe. So we need to create our own spiritual, we could say, world from the chaos. That chaos is precisely our own... Uh, in reference to our own energies in our body that are untamed, and also our mind. Because like it says in the book of Genesis, and the, void, and the world was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. That darkness is our own mind. But if we know how to work with the energies, we call akasha, we call ether, by working with the breath, the spirit that floated above the waters, working with our breath, with mantra, with pranayama, or working in alchemy, in a marriage, those energies can create the, our inner universe. So what is the primordial chaos but aether, says Blavatsky? Not the modern ether, not such as re- is recognized now, but such as was known to the ancient philosophers long before the time of Moses. But aether, we could say akasha too, with all of its mysterious and occult properties, containing in itself the germs of universal creation. Upper aether or akasha is the celestial virgin and mother of every existing form and being, from whose bosom, as soon as incubated by the divine spirit, the Ruach Elohim, as I mentioned, are called into existence, matter and life, force and action. Aether is the Aditi of the Hindus, and it is Akasha. Electricity, magnetism, heat, light, and chemical action are so little understood even now that fresh facts are constantly widening the range of our knowledge. Who knows where ends the power of this protean giant, Aether, Akasha, or once its mysterious origin. Who, we mean, that denies the spirit that works in it and evolves out of it all visible forms. So as I mentioned to you, this energy has created the, the universes, the worlds, the stars. And we precisely carry the same power within our sexual glands. So as Mula Prakriti is in nature, we find, as the Hindus teach us, the Prakriti is in the base of our spine and our sexual organs, which when we know how to work with uh, the different practices of the tradition, we can awaken that fire and therefore illuminate our Christmas tree, meaning our, we could say, our spinal medulla as well.
Because if we take the tree of life, we put it on a person, it refers to the, the middle column refers to the spine. Because the spine of a person is the tree of life. Without that, one cannot exist. Spine also refers to willpower. Like we say, if, if this person has no spine, basically is a kind of rude condemnation of another person. Yes. Merkaba is just a vehicle. Okay. It can transmit higher energies. Now, if one has those bodies, one has an extra benefit to be able to transmit more force. Right. But what's necessary is to still discipline the mind. So it's a medium that can help. It's not an end in itself. So when we talk about the ether or akash, we talk about how it relates to our physical body as well. So we're discussing the nature of this energy within the cosmos, but also within our physicality. This ether, akash, is what manifests in this physical plane as the different elements that we experience. So we have Hindu ter- um, Sanskrit terms when the akash modifies itself in order to manifest in this physical world. Akash, when it is petrified, when it becomes solid, forms the earth, known as uh, pritvi. When that ether condenses as a fluidic substance, it becomes the water, apas. When the akash is in an igneous, flaming state, it becomes tejas, which is fire. And when it becomes like fluidic and gaseous, it becomes vayu, the air. So this is just one level in terms of nature. We have these, these uh, we could say these principles known as tattvas, modifications of that force ether within nature. Also importantly, we have these forces in our body, which we need to work with to help us, uh, we could say, awaken our consciousness. So these elements relate to, we could say, different aspects of our body, of our psychology. Pridfi relates to the physical body, is our earth. The waters pertain to our, we can say, our seminal fluid. Any fluids in our body that, that uh, help with the process of the endocrine system, uh, the nervous, nervous systems, the waters that circulate in our body as in our blood, which is a vehicle of fire, tejas. And the fire relates to uh, heat, uh, even combustion in our body, any, the, uh, many processes like uh, catabolic and metabolic states, breaking down of, uh, of uh, waste in our body. We also have uh, vayu related to our breath, which gives us life in every instant. The akash precisely pertains to a fire that permeates all of that, all these elements within our body, but most precisely within sexuality. So we say that the kundalini is akash. That mysterious fire of the Divine Mother is akash. She is the fire of creation. So those are Hindu words, right? Yes. Derived from the Hindu. Okay. Or we could say uh, Sanskrit, more precisely. But, uh, you know, it's not my intention to go much more in depth, but we state that in order to preserve the health of our physical body, we need to consume elements that are beneficial for our, di- our psyche, basically. So different foods have different uh, condensations of these forces. Grains have a lot of pritvi, meaning earth, or uh, legumes, beans, things, like, things of that nature. It's good to consume elements from these different uh, forces, the tattvas, 
to help balance our psychology, to create a more harmonious uh, energy in our body. We have uh, apas, which we find in, in uh, fish specifically, because the fish of the sea, they channel the waters of the earth and the cosmos, the energies that enter the planet and enter the waters, and uh, strengthen that, those, uh, those uh, animals, the fish. And so it's good to consume fish in balance uh, the, in order to consume that element apas, which helps us to control the waters of our body. Just as the pridfi, consuming grains in moderation, helps to strengthen our body. We have tejas, which we find in red meat, which uh, as uh, you know, red meat has, a, has what we call fire, because it's energy. It's good to eat in moderation, but if one is vegetarian, that's acceptable. But if one wants to have a little bit more fire, one can consume red meat in moderation. Usually no more than, uh, you can say, a palm for the size of one's palm uh, once, or once a week, typically, we say. And then vayu we find it within grape juice. Not alcohol, but it's better to drink grape juice, the non-alcoholic element. This is represented by the Eucharist. So the, we consume these uh, elements because in our diet because it helps to give us strong energies. So our diet helps feed our spirituality, basically. And so in studying the science of consciousness, we study how these forces manifest in our bodies so as to take advantage of them. Those who are lacking in certain elements should learn to harmonize the body by consuming in a, in a balanced way these different elements. Because it's these elements that we consume, the air we breathe, the food we eat, whether grains, meat, fish, legumes, uh, grains as I mentioned, etc. That is going to be transformed in our body precisely as what we call the seminal energy. This energy has the capacity to awaken ourselves spiritually. It's represented as the tree of knowledge in the book of Genesis. That forbidden tree that was commanded of uh, Adam and Eve not to eat, meaning not to indulge in the passions of sexuality, but to know how to use that force wisely, which we explain as in relation to the doctrine of chastity, purity. So precisely our sexual energies are the akash, and that energy awakens in us when we know how to work with mantras, vocalizations, exercises like pranayama, working international breathing, activating those energies through prayer, meditation, uh, and the work with breath. Because just as the breath, the spirit of God hovered above the waters, so too must we work with our own breath, the breathing, with sacred sounds in order to activate those forces. Lastly, we're going to just explain in brief how the ether can be divided also into four in relation to our psychological processes as well as physical. So we talked about how the ether manifests as uh, the four elements. But also we're going to explain uh, these four ethers as they're explained in the Bible. The Bible talks about the four rivers of Eden. These we call the four ethers. So those four rivers are Hirikel, Pison, Gihon, and Euphrates the rivers in the Bible. They represent what we call the four ethers. So this is how, also another way of looking how the ether manages our organism and how the ether in itself can uh, help us to understand our psychology. So we have the chemical ether. It's related to uh, all the processes of the organic assimilation and nourishment. So all of our physical processes in the body 
uh, digestion, consumption, the breaking down of fats, production of bile. Biochemistry in our body is related to the chemical ether. The ether of life is related to the production of the sexes or of the race. This is the energy that gives life through procreation, creates a child. But we have also two superior ethers related to uh, our perception, known as the luminous ether and the reflecting ether. The luminous ether is related to the processes of sensorial perception. How we perceive physically depends on the health of this ether, which is luminous. The reflecting ether is intimately related with the faculties of memory, imagination, willpower, etc., etc. So luminous ether pertains to our physical perception, but reflecting ether pertains to our spiritual perception. So as I've been mentioning to you, these ethers and forces, they help us to channel the consciousness. They help us to manifest consciousness. And we mentioned in brief, just some exor- uh, in brief, in passing, some exercises that one can use to work with that force in order to awaken the consciousness. So uh, when talking about these four ethers, uh, if, since you're familiar with uh, Merkaba, uh, Max Heindel is another occultist. He explained that the su- two superior ethers need to be separated from the inferior ethers. This is the meaning of the Bible when God said, let the waters be divided into heaven and to the lower firmament. So these two ethers are separated, are purified, are elevated, especially within a matrimony, by working uh, with one's partner, connecting sexually with love, purity, and devotion to God, and never wasting that force, never expelling it through the, uh, the orgasm specifically. So the luminous ether and the reflecting ether are strengthened and they help to form what is known as the vital, the vital body, or the, the beginning of the Merkaba, we could say. So these energies and forces are explain many of our physiological processes. But also, um, when we talk about these forces, we, we emphasize that they're in order to aid us towards awakening spiritually. So we have practices of meditation, of uh, concentration, which are strengthened when we know how to work with these forces within us. must remain with the physical body. And he said, through spiritual practices, you raise the two out. Exactly what you said, those two higher luminous and the other ether. Reflecting. They go on. And in clarity, you'll be in other planes. So those, those, those higher ethers pertain to our perception and it can illuminate us within the internal planes. So if we want to have experiences out of the body, working in the dream state, it's necessary to work with that vital energy. We do it through mantra, pranayama, some of our some of our yoga practice, yoga practices, and uh, one thing Heindel mentioned that was a bit incomplete was that he said that in order to create the so uh, he called the soma sushi kon bodies of the psyche one needs to just separate the ethers that's one step there's a much, there's a deeper process that we've mentioned elsewhere in relation to the spiritual bodies but that's another topic in itself but uh, the ethers are important. So we talk about many things, space and time, how our illusions of, of, of perception are based on uh, the misperception of our 
psychological states. But in order to access the higher regions of uh, spirituality, we must learn to conserve our energies and work with them uh, to spiritual practice, specifically. So that energy is what is going to allow us to perceive. If we have no fire, we don't have that, that power, that energy, we cannot perceive light. Because only from fire comes light, as represented in the myth of the cave by Plato. Are there any questions? Someone who calls himself Magizrek. Uh, John Dumbledore. He has a school called School of Remembrance. And um, he teaches uh, John Dumbledore how to uh, remember and how to activate the Merkel. Have you know anything about that? Precisely, we, call it, we talk about the perfect matrimony okay. in order to uh, develop the vehicles of the soul. Okay. The Merkaba is really literally a chariot that Ezekiel was taken on in order to uh, experience the highest realms. So those are what we call solar vehicles, which we emphasize are only created in the sexual act, but not in the common way. Because as Jesus of Nazareth taught, you must be born again of water and spirit. Water is the ether, or kash, that substance in our body that we can give birth to the spirit. You're born of the wind and the spirit. The wind is working with our breath, with mantras, such as in the perfect matrimony, when uniting with our partner, one is sexually connected and never spills that force. Otherwise, if one ejaculates that energy in the orgasm, what is expelled from Eden? As I mentioned in the Hebraic myth. Because uh, Eden is a Hebrew word that means bliss. So the ultimate bliss between a man and a woman is sexually speaking, when they're united. But if they don't know how to control that serpent that kundalini, that fire that's awakened in them, if they expel it, the serpent goes down and forms what we call the tail of Satan. But if that certain is, serpent is tamed, that sexual passion is controlled and transformed, it rises up the spinal medulla only in accordance with moral uh, rectitude, work in the heart, controlling and annihilating anger, pride, vanity. Because the Divine Mother is that fire, that kundalini force that can create the solar bodies, the Merkaba. But only if we are working on ourselves, meaning we're meditating and trying to comprehend our faults. Otherwise, we take that energy, we feed it our desires, and that's bad. This presumes that you have to use some type of force over that energy to negate, again, the erotic element involved. It's common to have the erotic element in sex. The desire. I mean, it's potent. You'd have to neutralize that to make sure there's no ejaculation and to keep it spiritual. This could be a task, it must be, in itself. And so we call that energy Lucifer. People think it's some guy in a red suit with a, with a pitchfork who's living in a kingdom of brimstone and fire. Lucifer literally means, it comes from luciferus, bearer of light. So the fire is that serpent, that sexual power, which is very tempting to indulge in that pleasure and to waste it. But the, the Lord in the Garden of Eden said, do not eat of that fruit, meaning don't culminate in the animal orgasm, symbolically speaking, otherwise you will be ejected from Eden. So that energy can't, if we conserve it, if we control it and dominate it, will rise like in, uh, like Moses' serpent upon a staff. That staff is the spinal column. So when that serpent rises inwardly and upwardly, it forms, illuminates the tree of life, our body, our psyche. That creates the Christmas tree. And so, 
when Moses is representing our, the willpower of an, of an initiate who's dominating the sexual energy, he can then uh, go to Egypt and try to free his people. So it's not just physically a group of people in the Middle East that existed. Instead, it refers to the parts of our soul that are trapped in ego and suffering. And so that energy has the power to create or destroy. You mentioned willpower, which you also said has a lot to do with the heart, Tifereth, is that correct? Yes. So Tifereth and Kabbalah is the heart, the human soul. So, um... Actually, I had a question. Um, so, when you're saying matrimony, are you meaning a man and a woman married or two partners in love? I'm saying... Uh, in terms of a match, what a real matrimony is, and this is a good question. Samael and Vior stated that a real matrimony is decided between the two beings of the couple. And that a marriage only consists when a couple is in love and they live in a legitimately constituted home. Some people have tried to interpret this as you gotta be physically you have physical papers that you're married. And but elsewhere he stated, you know, this contrivance of physical papers and marriage papers and all that conflict and all that um, difficulty is really superficial and meaningless. When a man and woman unite sexually when they love each other, that is marriage. They're united sexually through that bond. That energy is so powerful, it unites them through eternity. Therefore, the one who decides who the couple, or the married couple is really God within. So if, one, if, one, if we have our partner and you know, we're living together but we're not necessarily married and have papers, that's not important. What's important is that the being within us has decided that this is our partner and that we work with her. Okay. Uh, the real matrimony is dependent upon the will of God, okay. not on papers. So you're talking about partnerships. Yes. Defining partnerships, not necessarily a man and a woman being married with papers. When we talk about matri- yeah, when we talk about matrimony, we mean sexual connection. To be sexually connected is to be married. That's a bond that cannot be broken. So it's very serious if we have a partner and we've want to work with this energy because um, it's what can unite us with God. So because as taught by Jesus, the cross is the path of the cross, basically. The phallus is the vertical beam, the, the uterus is the horizontal beam. And that it's through that energy in which we can die to our most horrible defects, which is symbolized by the passion of Jesus, bearing his cross and suffering what he did. So that's another topic. But uh, matrimony is really when two beings love each other fully even if they don't have physical papers that they're married. What's important is that one has love. If there's no love, then papers mean nothing. Papers are really, it's, it's kind of a necessity in these times, you know, for tax purposes. But at the same time, it's not the most essential thing. Are there any other questions or comments? Yes. They're related. So the, reason, the solar bodies are precisely when that sexual fire rises up the spinal column to the brain and then to the heart. So when that fire is fully active and manifest within that given body, whether the physical body, or the vital body, the astral body, the mental body, or the causal body, that forms the Merkava. The Merkava is the vehicle of the soul. So in order to express God fully, we need to develop those vehicles through precisely the work with these ethers that would be mentioned. So that energy is what creates those vehicles through which God can act and is literally the fire that illuminates that tree. So that body has fire only because of the Kundalini. And that fire creates those vehicles. So that's what the Merkabah is. Yeah, that's why you said Christ can't um, 
without those vehicles. Otherwise, if the being tried to, as I said, if the being were to try to incarnate, the person would if the person would be obliterated, because that because the the being is the power of a galaxy, of a solar system, of a star. That's the power of Christ. It's a force, which if we want to manifest that, we need to work with that energy, precisely. I wanted to talk about uh, clairvoyance because that's something that. Um that I'm trying to develop too. Uh, and I remember there was a particular time, it must have been a couple of years ago, but uh, I had noticed that I kind of had like the power to read those ones closest to me, like their thoughts. Um, and there was one particular time, this was when I was a little bit younger, when I was experimenting, you know, with uh, hallucinogens and stuff like that in order to see into like, you know, different right. kind of perspectives. Uh, I remember one particular time, my friend and I, uh, we were on LSD. And uh, I looked at him, and his face was melting, and it was, and I was a little freaked out. And then he told me, like a couple seconds later, he's like, he's like, it feels like my face is melting, and that really freaked me out because I think, like for for a split second, I was in his mind, and I was seeing something that, you know, he, I was seeing something before he even said something, and, and that kind of freaked me out. Now was that um, a kind of moment of a? Uh, of uh, clairvoyance to be able to see uh, or to hear someone else's thoughts? We call that, in that sense, because of, of the involvement of drugs, we call it negative clairvoyance. Okay. It's a type of perception, but it's channeled through, we call the mind, right. through desire. So we don't suggest the consumption of drugs yeah, no. in any manner. But in the, that, those substances awaken the negative perception. So like we talked about, ikasia, meaning the lowest state of consciousness, meaning just sleep without dreams. There are those who take drugs and they awaken their consciousness trapped in the darkness, so to speak. So it's a type of, it's akasya, meaning imagination. You're perceiving images, but it's from the unconsciousness. It's a type of perception like uh, animals see at night who are accustomed to that type of perception. So we say that's negative and that's actually the type of, that's really the type of perspective that demons have. Angels have positive clairvoyance. They see things objectively. They see the realities of the different dimensions without confusion and without any uh, obstruction to their perception. But a demon learns to see precisely by using drugs and by alcohol or through fornication especially, the abuse of the sexual energy. They develop power in the mind to see in the mind. And so it's a, another topic in itself. But explains uh, those type of perceptions. So it is a perception that you had. Through the mind, but a negative one. But, negative one. Um, but this is um, this is perceived uh, through the pineal gland, right? This is like perception. We say the clairvoyance relates specifically to what we call the pituitary gland, in between the eyebrows. So, as we mentioned a little bit about the physical body, our organs play an intimate role in our own uh, internal chemistry, but also the working of f- spiritual forces. So the endocrine system plays a role in terms of how we can perceive forces. So if we develop our heart, we can learn to astral travel. If we develop the gland and the, the, the pituitary gland in the, in the, between the eyebrows, that can help develop clairvoyance. Oh, okay. uh, we have different glands, that, like the thyroid, related with throat, can help with what uh, we call clairaudience, learning to hear psychic sounds, such as in dreams or out of the body. So those glands do relate, that gland relates to uh, clairvoyance specifically. So it's the pituitary gland that's related to clairvoyance, but is the pineal gland a more of a receiver? Like a the, pineal gland, the pineal gland, good question. The pineal gland uh, 
is a transmitter. So when we transmit thought, which is a vibration, it comes from the pineal gland. We receive through the solar plexus. So people call telepathy uh, or transience the ability to communicate through energy. Thoughts, the, the brain is the transmitter, the pineal gland. The solar plexus is the receiver of a thought or vibration. So then the, then the, the brothers at the left-hand path, when they want to get you, I read over and over, they go for the solar plexus, apparently. They yes. They feel you feel it. They try to weaken you to draw the energy through the navel chakra. And people say they do drain the weak when they're in the presence of a negative person. It was really, especially the brothers of the left-hand path, they do it deliberately. They say this could be done accidentally. There's people who drain you. They don't need to. It's just their nature to, to drain it. So the solar plexus is where we store a lot of energy. It's like our sun, basically. Um, so a good, a good intestinal, healthy intestinal tract is, goes a long way in spiritual studies. So it may sound interesting, oh, what, is it, what does the spirituality have to do with the body? But as we've been mentioning, the, the forces in our body can help us awaken spiritually. So um, the solar plexus has a lot of those solar energies, which we attempt to use in our practices. You spoke of the fourth dimension. What is that in the astral plane? The astral plane is the fifth dimension. That's the fifth dimension. The fifth dimen- yes, the fifth dimension is the mind, Netzach, and Hod, the astral dimension, the heart. The fourth dimension is vital energy. Above that we have mental and emotional energy, or mental and emotional matter. People think, uh, again, it's, it's important to clarify that. Some people, when they hear of astral projection, they think it's something vague. In fact, the internal planes are as material as the physical plane, that they have a type of sustenance or matter or, or forces which are tangible. The thing is, we don't perceive that because we don't work with our energies, basically. But if we were to work with transmutation using our vital energies, their ethers, we can awaken the luminous and reflective ethers and they can uh, expand in our consciousness so that we can perceive these things. But the fifth dimension is uh, the astral plane. Above that is the spirit, and then Christ is the seventh dimension beyond. Uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up about the uh, pineal gland. Uh, so I remember the first time I came here, I uh, was talking about how, uh, you know, how the presence of fluoride in water and food is, over time has calcified the pineal gland and yes. kind of made it uh, inactive. Uh, so I did some research, and uh, I recently bought a... This thing, it's, uh, I'm not sure if any of you guys are familiar with the site InfoWars. It's a site that, uh, it has alternative uh, news media, you know, related to the government exposing the kind of things that, you know, goes on. Uh, but this thing actually works really well. It's, it's fluoride shield. It's got, like, a bunch of organic uh, things in here. It's got organic uh, tamarind, zeolites, uh, fulvic acid, uh, shilajit, and organic, uh, organic uh, cilantro. Uh, but this has honestly helped me... Um, with uh, when I try to meditate and stuff, I sometimes I can't focus because uh, I feel like there is too many thoughts. And so with the calci- with the calcified pineal gland, since you said it's you know your that's where your thoughts are associated. Right. Since it's calcified, uh, could it also mean that um, it would be harder for you to meditate because of all the other thoughts that are in, that are you know in your mind and you can't really. Uh, think about your one true self because of the calcified uh, pineal gland? I, w- I would say uh, the, a healthy body is a healthy mind, basically. But don't get so worried about, I can't meditate because my pineal gland is calcified. Yeah. But think about, just think about uh, yeah, try to, rec- if, you, if you feel like you've su- suffered damage, 
to your perineal gland, and most of us have. Uh, I don't know so much about uh, the substances you're mentioning, but uh, I, know, I do know that when you work with transmutation of your sexual energies, when you raise that energy inward and upward to the brain, it illuminates the mind. And uh, there's some studies based, uh, I believe it was on uh, Kellogg, we have available on our website, explained that the hormones of our body are intimately related with our sexual energy, our sexual matter. So we conserve the semen, the seminal matter, and transform it into energy. Those uh, transform into hormones and can nourish the pineal gland and regenerate the brain. So the greatest composers, artists, musicians, philosophers, they had illuminated minds, meaning they, their brain was uh, uh, seminalized, we could say, and their semen was cerebralized, I believe is the word. So there's an intimate relationship between the waters of sex and the waters of the brain. And this is the meaning of, this mysterious meaning of the name Miriam, because the letter M signifies water. Miriam is the divine mother, water below and water above in the brain. The two firmaments mentioned in Genesis. So if you have a healthy body, you have a healthy mind. But don't uh, we all we all suffer some problems in our bodies because because uh, of past mistakes. But uh, the thing is to take advantage of what we have now, and not to fret over it, but to work with that energy within the body called uh, Kundalini force or sexual energy. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.